Welcome to RevOps Corner, where we talk about how B2B SaaS companies scale through revenue operations by interviewing amazing guests and sharing what we see in the trenches every day here at Union Square Consulting. Welcome to RevOps Live number 14, evolving from founder-led sales. With our special guest today, Wayne Morris. Thank you for joining us, Wayne. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to get in this, into this with you. Wayne is the founder of Wayne Morris Consulting, and he helps B2B SaaS founders successfully evolve from founder-led sales. As a founder myself, I'm doing founder-led sales, and I'm really interested to hear some of his best practices for evolving the business. Um, I also have our event producer, Sarah Ra, with us today. Sarah, thank you so much Glad for helping us put this together. Glad to be here. So without further ado, um, I'm going to launch into this. And I think we're going to skip our typical monologue here, and I'm just going to launch straight into some questions. I think I want to start, Wayne, with this chart that I had posted on LinkedIn in promoting this event, which is from your website and your, your blog or newsletter on go-to-market debt and the phases. And I've got this actually printed out so I can actually see things through my screen here. Mm -hmm. And... You talk about a lot of different issues that founders have trying to evolve from founder-led sales to build a sales team. Um, mm -hmm. I'm assuming a big piece of this is hiring a VP of sales and setting them up for success. Yeah, but it's not the first piece. It's probably the last piece. Uh, and that's where a lot of founders go wrong. Yeah, I kind of figured you were going to say that, and I totally agree with that. And so what I'd like to do is we'll see where this conversation goes. And again, I want to encourage the audience to throw in your questions, but I want to start with idea market fit and then go into product market fit and go to market fit and go through each of these challenges that you say that most of the founders that you're working with experience, ask you some mm -hmm. questions about that, and also share what I'm seeing with our customers, what I've seen being AE number one at a startup multiple times, what I saw being an AE at Salesforce as a polar opposite example, um, and what mm -hmm. I'm experiencing doing founder-led sales in my own company. So as mm -hmm. I said, super excited to dive into this, and I hope that we don't lose power and lose you halfway through this call. Yeah, fingers crossed. Let's go for it. This is going to be fun. Awesome. So let's just start at the top. So the first thing that I see, if I'm reading this correctly, left or right, is you talk about not having your product or your market defined. No TAM, mm -hmm. SAM, or SOM analysis. Tell me more about that. Yeah, well, I mean, when when a founder is looking at you know, their idea and whether they should be pursuing it or not, you know, often it's just a personal passion, um, and they look at it and they build a product, and they, you know, and on on the back of the, the build of that product, they they then go test it in the marketplace, but ultimately, you know. There's a billion ideas out there, and and the key the key for every founder to to appreciate is like is is this a is this a rabbit hole that I want to go down? Because once you go down it, it's pretty hard to get out of it. So understanding the value of that opportunity is really really important. And you'll you'll always hear VCs say to founders, is this a ten million dollar opportunity, a hundred million dollar opportunity, a billion dollar opportunity, or a multi billion dollar opportunity? Because what we want is the multi billion dollar opportunity. Um, and um, the challenge with a lot of that stuff, though, is that founders just stop at the total addressable market, which is what I've just been speaking about. But in reality, there's you know the sales addressable market and the sales obtainable market. So you know, what's what can we truly go at today? You know, what's truly within the realms of possibility today? Not 
the the the, the total market and um you know and what's actually obtainable today so these are like elements of realism that that layer underneath the total addressable market that that bring reality to the opportunity and you know you'll be surprised to hear that you know a lot of founders can raise capital just on tam but you know salespeople can't be successful just on tam you know it, ha it has to it has to dive a little bit deeper than that so um when when i you know, I built my career working with founders and helping them get beyond these stages and phases. And that's how I built my career, going in early into early stage startups, founders having an idea, selling it themselves, and then me coming in and saying, well, in order for you to scale this, you're going to need more than you. That's why you hired me, but you're also going to need more than me. So we should break down what this opportunity looks like and we should break down the, the best way to position this so that we can create the foundations for some kind of scale. So going back to base is always something that founders are reluctant to do. But if you can convince them to do it, even when they've just raised a $10 million Series A, what you'll often find, and I found in my last three operational roles, is the problem that they were working on wasn't necessarily the largest total, total addressable market opportunity. There were other things that were related. We uncovered those, had small degrees of separation from the original idea to where we were headed, and then we went after a bigger opportunity. So it's one thing understanding the TAM, but it's another thing being open to be critical to whether that's the opportunity that we should continue to pursue, even though it was the first one that we began to pursue. So I want to dive into this further, but just for anybody listening that isn't familiar with these terms, can you define TAM, SAM, and SOM? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, TAM is the total addressable market. So, you know, you look at, um, you take CRM, for, for example, and you, you know, you look at every company that could possibly use a you know, customer relationship management software, and you say, okay, well, that's the size of the market. And it could be basically every company that has salespeople sat in front of a, or a, every company that has customers, right, would be a, would be a, would be a TAM for a CRM business. But the sales addressable market is, is every company that has salespeople sat in front of a computer. And that's not the that's not the whole term, right? And then a sales obtainable market is okay. Are we? To, is this product that we've developed an enterprise product or an SMB product or a mid-market product? And is it focused on a specific niche? Okay, well, it's SMB and it's healthcare. Okay, well, that's our sales obtainable market. So you go from this multi-billion-dollar opportunity down to or a hundred billion dollar plus opportunity or trillion dollar opportunity down to hundred billion dollar opportunity down to a multi-billion dollar opportunity um and, and that's what you're really looking for what, what you don't want is oh i'm going after a 10 you know the tam is 50 million dollars okay great but when we get to the psalm which is like our niche and who we can target it might be a few hundred thousand dollars well okay that's probably not a great business today yeah so, and by the way, somebody had asked in the chat, if I could share this chart, we're recording and like, we're trying to make these juicy clips for marketing. So I want to make sure I get uh, Wayne's beautiful face here and not swap between, you know, 
um, slides, but I did share that in the chat for anybody that wants to follow along because we are going to spend a lot of time on those slides and who knows, maybe our editor will throw that into the, uh, the finished clips. But Wayne, can you go back to where we were before I ask you to uh, uh, define those terms and talk about how you were able to help founders identify a bigger market than they originally had in mind? Yeah, so <clears throat> let's just take, maybe we could just use some real real life uh, real life examples. Um, so the the first business that I helped grow from zero to twenty million dollars was a business called Maximizer. And we did a B and multivariate testing. It was an optimizely competitor for those of you that are familiar with optimizely. And when I went into that business, um, the business was built on the basis of a product-led growth self-serve kind of model. But in reality, when I sat down with all of the customers that they had, which was about 15 of them at the time, they were all struggling to use the product. So what that told me is that it wasn't really a great self-serve uh, play. It wasn't really, it wasn't really a product-led growth motion. It was more wishful thinking on the founder's part versus an actual reality. So, um, so when I looked at it more closely, the other thing that I realized was the users saw value in being able to run more experiments with the tool. And the goal was to more experiments they run, the more value they got. But the reality was the value was much more at a strategic level. The value was much was, was on the ground, but it was really at the executive level because it enabled the executive team's ideas to come to life and it enabled them to put value behind the ideas that they had very, very quickly. So um, what we, we so we thought the total addressable market there was really siloed within the user group. But actually, when we elevated up to the C-suite, we realized that the average sale price of our product wasn't $10,000. It was more like $100,000. And um, so from a pure value proposition perspective, value exchange perspective, we got it wrong by a factor of 10. But what we also realized was, you know, this wasn't something that was just that could just be a value to marketing teams, it was also going to be a value to product teams who wanted to be able to you know, test test products uh, and test features um, before like putting full deployment into them. So suddenly we were able to sell beyond just the marketing team into the product team. So the total, so just by looking at the product, its usage and the value exchange, we were able to grow the what we what we originally thought was a certain size of TAM to 10 to 20x that's the, the size of, of the total addressable market so that's one example in a in a more recent example i was the chief revenue officer for a business called wonder school which is an a16z backed childcare marketplace and when i went into that business it was, you a, said it was a child care marketplace yeah it was a mark so if you're a if you're a um if any of you are parents and you're looking for places to um for, for childcare for your kids, um, then you would go to the, the Wonder School marketplace and you would search for schools in your local vicinity and you would vet them and Wonder School was your entry point to that. But what we when I entered the business about three weeks before the pandemic hit, which was wonderful timing, um, it was pretty clear that um, 
after having spoken with about 50 of the customers, it was pretty clear that this model was struggling and it wasn't really working. However, there was a real need to increase the supply of childcare into the marketplace. There just wasn't enough. There wasn't enough spots for kids. So the in in looking at the fundamentals of the, of the of the market that they were targeting and the total addressable market, we just came at it differently. And what we realized was from a go-to-market perspective, whilst the TAM looked big, it wasn't very addressable because the proprietors of these small schools weren't needed a lot of support to use the technology. So what we what we looked at and what we decided was in order to make that um, total addressable market much more accessible and obtainable, we would, rather than go direct to these providers, we would go indirect to states and to governments. And it went from being a marketplace to a software as a service sold to states and cities that would then deploy the software at scale to, um, to the providers on the ground. So the TAM stayed the same, but the sales addressable market and the sales obtainable market exploded with that with that pivot um, in in how we went to market. That's really interesting, and we could dive deep into that. But just thinking about time here, I think we've got fifteen different points on your chart, and we're just through the first one. So I know this is your area of expertise, so you could probably speak to this for hours, if not days. But let's go on to some of the other points because I'm really interested to peel back the onion on this. So you talked a lot about understanding the the market. And then some of the next points you have on here are, um, let me pull this up here so it's closer to my eyes, the failure to map the competitive set and then a failure to analyze the unique selling proposition and then mm -hmm. the failure to document your ideal customer profile. Can you mm -hmm. dive into that a little bit more and share what you're commonly seeing with startups and how they solve this problem? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible how many founders that I speak with and I say, can you can you just detail to me who your competitors are and like what your key points of differentiation are? And they're not able to do that. And a lot of the reason for that is that, that they they have an intrinsic understanding in their head of how they're different um, and why they are better than the competition. But it, it's, it hasn't been committed to writing. So it's stuck in their head and they find it difficult to articulate. Um, the reality is, is until you get it into writing, it doesn't, in my mind, it doesn't exist. And clearly it doesn't scale, right? It exists in the founder, but the founder doesn't scale. So the, a real baseline is trying to understand from a, a, a features, benefits and value perspective, who your competitors are and how you compare. And it's really, that is the kernel to appreciate what's unique. So when someone says to me, um, well, this is what's unique about us, and this is who my ideal customer profile is. I'm always trying to, I'm always trying to do the, see their working. I'm trying to do the math on that. So where did that come from? Um, and it always comes from having a clear understanding of who you compete against, why you exist, and how you solve the problem differently. And if that's not clear, then your unique selling points are not clear. If your unique selling points are not clear, then what is it that you're? How is it that you're positioning? your product in the market, and how is it that you're training your salespeople to position the product in the market? It's going to be off, right? And so if it's off, then they're not going to be as productive. And if not as productive, you're going to see all sorts of underperformance in pipeline, uh, pipeline conversion. 
But, you know, the outcome of all of that is you, you also end up targeting customers that you shouldn't be targeting. Now, that's very different to closing business. We can all close business with customers that are not ideal for us. We can all do that. But that doesn't validate that they are the right customers for you. What really validates that the right customers for you is that you created value in those customers. They were able to replay that value back to you and you could realize that value exchange in hard cash and that hard cash renewed and continued to renew and ideally spent more with you over time. So what you often find with founders is when I look at their when I look at their book of business, you'll often see a whole range of those types of customers. So you'll do a cohort analysis and you'll see, okay, um, well, you know, there's a cohort of customers here that are not renewing, but there's a cohort of customers here that are renewing and spending more with you. Which one of those two do you think is ideal and why? And a lot of founders just haven't done that analysis. They're just they're just continuing to try and close business as best as they can, because for a lot of them, it's just survival. But if they paused for a moment and reflected and they focused on the areas of revenue that they could win more easily, retain more easily and grow more easily, they would have the, the foundations of a really healthy future SaaS business, which is frankly built upon being able to land revenue and then expand it sustainably over time, which is why that big, why, why net revenue retention is such an important metric for SaaS businesses. Yeah, there's so much in there to unpack that I identify with personally. And, you know, I run a services business, not a SaaS company, but there's a lot of corollaries here. And with services businesses, it's even easier to take on the wrong clients. I mean, I think that's like service business 101 is the like people ask you to do things and you just say, well, if you pay my rate, I can do that. And then you wake up a year or two later and you're like, I'm not any good at doing this thing for them. I can't really tell the market about how great we've solved their problems because it's such an outlier. And I've worked mm -hmm. in and with so many software companies that take a, this, a similar approach. Um, you know, we've worked with a software company in the past where we were implementing a, a solution on top of Salesforce and they had their core solution that was built for a very specific type of customer. And then somebody else would come in and they would turn to us and they would say, can you just build a custom solution basically from scratch on Salesforce for them? And we're looking at it and we're like, everything that we have built for this company doesn't leverage any of the technology that you've built in your solution. Yes, they're paying you licensing fees, but you're spread so thin. Like, how are you mm -hmm. ever going to go the next time you land a customer, you're gonna have to do custom code again. And I know I'm jumping ahead to other pieces in your, your chart, but I think for me, when I look at what we've done in our business over the last six years and some of these challenges that, that you're sharing, it's really easy to fall into these traps. And so much of this is in my head as a founder that like I have been doing some flavor of this work for the past 10 to 20 years, depending on where you draw the line. And when I think about how we stack up against our competition and what our addressable market is like and what unique value we bring to them, you know, it's easy for that to just kind of remain in my head. And then you end up in this situation where you onboard account executives, which I've done, and you're trying to explain this to them. And they're like, I don't have the 10 or 20 years of experience and context that you have in order to go 
out to market and do this. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. whether you're a bootstrap company like mine, or you've just raised your series A, you have this mm-hmm. intense pressure to bring revenue in the door as fast as humanly possible. And you feel like I don't have time to take one step back. But ultimately, when you do, you end up taking two steps forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and I mean, it, it. you know, I feel for the founders that have put themselves in a position where they're under so much pressure, they just have to keep moving forwards extremely quickly because it forces them to cut corners and, you know, they're really unhealthy habits and psyches such as just searching for the you know silver bullets that just, just don't exist. But the, the commitment to documentation of what's in the founder's head is, is really a conundrum you have to find a way for solving, of, of solving. And if you don't, you, you're going to struggle. Now, you know, contextually, um, I, I've seen founders get to $20 million in ARR all by themselves in a SaaS company. They've got people around them supporting and their cultures are a bit screwed up, but they've got there. But they're also burnt out. And also, you know, their, their startup is not going to go much beyond that. But it really has the capability from a you know, total addressable market perspective to be much bigger than that. But they can't get out from underneath themselves. You and I have spoken about this offline. And um, you know, I'm biased in this just purely based on my own personal experience. But like I said at the top of this um, discussion, I really built my career on being the very first or very early sales rep that came in and was able to take what the take the founder's vision and take how they had sold their product and commit it to writing that was really what I did um you know I was always the kind of salesperson that wanted to build my own personal point of view on the value prop and the value exchange that this product was was creating for the client because unless I believed it, I wouldn't be able to sell it. But I also appreciated that, you know, my point of view alongside the founder's point of view documented would be a really powerful document that would enable other people to come into the business and ramp up effectively, but also create some kind of scale. So my view on this is, in an ideal world, you would find that person too. You, you know, that if you are the founder and you have been selling this, ideally you would find that um, experienced account executive that either has a passion for or has proven that they can document what's in a founder's head um, and and create that documentation for you if you if you haven't created it yourself. The deal that I, I think- struck with. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that's interesting. But as you describe that, I think of somebody fairly senior because I can speak from personal experience. I came in as AE number one in a SaaS startup. The name of the company is Altvia. And Mm -hmm. I was about 25 years old coming off of my first real sales job after college. I paid my way through school selling as well, but like my first real post-college sales job. And I had performed really well in that sales job, but I was still very early in my career. And I very much was like you, I wanted to map all this stuff out. And I remember I did an exercise where I created this giant chart on the whiteboard and I brought every single employee in one at a time to like help explain to me what it is we did and how we did it. But ultimately, if we think back to the competitive set, this was a solution built on top of Salesforce for private equity firms. 
And, you know, I'd regularly, you know, sit on calls with the CEO and the prospect would say, well, how does this compare to backstop? And he would just fire it off. He's like, oh, it's not nearly as good as backstop. Here's why. And I'm like, I've never seen backstop to this day. Like, I don't really understand much about it, even though ironically, we've done a lot of work with uh, private equity firms because it takes time to sit down and map that out and compare like, how does this tool compare to that tool? And as a sales rep, I wasn't armed with that. And so what I ended up doing was spending an incredible amount of time on non-sales activities. And then at the end of the year, my boss was really happy with me, but I hadn't really sold anything. And I thought, oh, I don't know how to sell software. I'm a failure. And then I went to Salesforce and I did really well there. And I look back on that experience and I think, okay, we had a CEO that at that time, he's been very successful and exited his company, but at that time, didn't know how to build a sales team. And here's me as a 25-year-old account executive, first time in SaaS, not mm. really knowing how to navigate these waters. Yeah. No, it's I mean, it's it's a tough balance. The way I always did it was just was put the revenue first. And I I wanted to prove to myself that I could sell this thing. That, and that was my primary and initial function. But as soon as I got good at selling it, and it would, you know, depending on the, the product that I'm thinking about when I when I talk through this is you know, it was a multi-month sales cycle. So it, you know, it was building, it was building trust over a six to nine month period with the founder first. Um, and, you know, doing deals that the founder hadn't done that were bigger, that were different, that were sold at a different level in the organization. And so I, so the way I did it at least was to build that trust first. And then I, and then I turned around to the founder and said, you know, I have documented how I have done this. Um, you know, I think it's, I think on the back of this documentation, I've earned the right to hire a couple of reps to see if we can do this at some kind of scale. Do you agree? And, you know, luckily the the founder kept their side of the deal and they said, they said yes, and we hired the reps. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a slam dunk out of the gate, but at least they had something that wasn't abstract, that wasn't them learning via osmosis from the founder or from me um and you know we got one of those reps right we got one of those reps wrong and you know part of it was a mishire and part of it was the enablement documentation was was good but not great and then we went at it again but it, but you know it did mean that we had the foundations to to, to scale because it was documented but uh, if you're an AE in this situation, listening to this, thinking, okay, all I have to do is go join the early stage startup and just document what's in the founder's head and all is going to be sweet. That's probably not the way to think about it. You know, you, you probably need to go in, prove yourself, get the deals done, build point of view that way in market. But as you go with all the tools that you have available to yourself, the note-taking tools and so on and so forth, make sure you're going back into those tools and bringing out all of the key pieces, documenting those into a framework that you that you follow and you iterate yourself. And then you can just illustrate back to the founder and say, hey, I've actually documented the process that got me to this success. Do you think this would work for, um, for new people coming in? If so, do you how about you take a chance on on me uh, helping you hire those people and having them work I, under me? I think there's a lot there, but I think what's really, really important for the CEO and the account executive in that scenario is they're both aligned on what the expectations are and the timeline. So I posted on this a month or two ago and got a lot of feedback on it. 
that this concept that like, I want to go and grab a sale, uh, an account executive from Salesforce that's hit their quota and closed a million dollars of business and bring them into my startup. That was me. Like I fit that description mm-hmm. to a T and then, okay, I'm going to bring you into the startup and I expect you're going to in three months start closing and bring a quarter million dollars in. And I sold almost nothing in that startup, same person, because I had to go through all of these exercises. And to be fair to my old boss, he was happy with me. He wanted me to stick around at the company, but I think I closed like $30,000 of ARR and many CEOs would have fired me three months in when I had Mm -hmm. zero in sales. Thankfully, Kevin was a patient guy, but what you're talking about, six to nine months, mapping this out, documentation, these are things a lot of account executives do not have the time to do while they have a really high quota, oftentimes an unrealistic quota hanging over their head. Yeah, I mean, it just depends how ambitious you are is honestly how you have to think about this. Like, you know, it's one thing coming in and hitting quota, but are you prepared to go the extra mile? Are you prepared to outwork everyone else on the team? And like, you know, if you are, then like, what you should spend your spare time doing is 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 going through and optimizing your your process and if you're not optimizing your own process and you're just like following what everyone else is doing then you're not going to stand out from the crowd and i mean that that's you know there's just heroics in this and you know for me as an account executive it was very much like okay i'm going to do everything i need to do to hit my goals but i'm going to do extra because it's who I am. It's what I care about. It was less about ambition. It was more about, I just know that like in order to scale this business that I'm passionate about, we're going to have to have documentation and I don't see anyone else doing it. And I'm one of the first people into the company. So I'm going to take a stab at it. Um, So this is so interesting, but I'm, I'm really surprised to hear this from you because I was going to think that you're going to say, look, like, and I don't think you're not saying this, but I was thinking you'd be more explicit in saying, we've got to set the foundation to set account executives up for success. Otherwise, like we're setting everybody up for failure with unrealistic expectations. Like here's an example. Okay. So let's all agree that like you're ultra ambitious, you're working hard, you're putting in the extra time. I'm fine with that. But then we go in and we start targeting the wrong customers with the wrong messaging. We can't answer questions. We have to pull the founder into every single sales call because the salesperson is incapable of doing that. So in doing that, we start documenting everything. But what we find is that the founder sold to a bunch of their personal connections. They closed a bunch of deals for people that are well outside of our ICP and it's not replicable. And so as a result, it takes three months, six months, nine months before we figure all that stuff out. And meanwhile, we're not closing anything. Um, mm-hmm. Am I just being too kind to my fellow account executive, my, my friends in account executive roles out there? No, I mean, like the foundations of who you're selling to and and how you're selling it. They, I mean, they if they're wrong, then you're pointing your team in the, in you know, in the incorrect direction. And so, you know, you, you don't want to be you don't want to be hiring people into your team unless you as, as the founder have figured that out first right but what i'm saying yeah and is, that's what i'm saying is i think that you're saying that there are founders that haven't figured that out yet that they are selling to friends and uh and acquaintances that they know through their network and they're leveraging like all the resources that they have to sell these sort of outlier deals that they can't expect account executives to replicate yeah. And, you know, the fact that I built my career coming in and was able to challenge that is, you know, I, I think is pretty unusual and, and do that successfully. I th- And I don't think you can build a business like yours as a services business, Eddie, or a SaaS business 
on the expectation that you'll find someone that will a come in and do that for you and b you know a founder will be open-minded enough to take that it's really on the founder to do that work and that's where i spend all of my time today is educating the founder about why that's important but also giving them the tools to say that this is how you do it because a lot of founders you know engineering and product founders think it's not in their skill set or it's or it's dirty work and not work that they want to be doing but actually it's it's relatively straightforward when you show them how um, and so it's really on the founder to do that. I mean, the founders have to do the first deals that the founders have to do the first iteration of, of, of the market that they're targeting. And then once they're confident, they have some level of repeatability to that. Then they bring in the sales rep. You know, at that point, the documentation is probably still not where it needs to be if if it even like truly exists. But it will be in the founder's head. It should be in the founder's head. So so that rep really wants to be able to take that out of the founder's head and get it down into writing so it's not that they don't have that focus it's just that it's not in writing so what i'm not saying here is like go hire a rep and you know have them like figure out where the founder should be focused or what they shouldn't be focused the founder should really have figured that out for themselves already otherwise they're likely to fail um but yeah. the documentation might not be there if the documentation isn't there then like go hire a rep that you're confident can help you get that documentation into a place where it needs to be but ideally you'd have it in place already yeah i think we're very much on the same page here and i'll give an example and i think where i struggled in in my role as a number one at that startup was is that our founder kevin had like landed his first big client through either a friendship or a past working relationship someone he was extremely close with so they landed in as like client number one, and they were our largest client by far. I think they were like 16% of our revenue at the time. And then they were then referring in all of their friends and other private equity firms that were coming in as our other customers. So then Kevin, the CEO is super busy and he's fielding all these referrals. So then he brings me in, in as an account executive and he says, okay, now let's start making it like hammering cold calls. That's just a completely different sales motion, right? And I'm like, okay, Kevin, like, who do I call? What's the messaging? How do I call them? Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't really know how we do that. We're going to have to figure that out, which is fine. But that I think is my excuse, at least maybe I'm just not a great salesperson, but that's my excuse for why it took me a lot more time to close deals than I, I think it did when I was at Salesforce. Yeah, if you're in, so if you're in this early stage environment um, and you're still doing customer development, you're still figuring this stuff out, then you're not really in a, you know, in an environment where you can justifiably set revenue targets. You're in an environment where you can justifiably set qualitative goals to understand what's happening in the market. But that can't be conflated with we're now ready to set you a revenue goal. And, you know, a lot of founders screw that up. It's like, well, you don't know the market. Show me you know the market. You don't. You're still figuring it out. So why are you going to put a million dollars on my head? I mean, how do you know it's not 100K or actually 10 million? Are you going to pay me out on the 10 million? The 10 million comes in. Yeah, of course I am. No, you're not. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it, you know, I think in those early stages, you just have to be intellectually honest about where you're at and what you need and, you know, Sadly, most founders are not. 
Yeah. And I want to be extremely fair since I'm on record here to, to Kevin, my old boss, he didn't, he didn't give me a quota or anything like that. Um, but when I was interviewing at Salesforce and I tried to explain to them why I didn't have a quota, they were just like, I don't understand. Can't you fill out this Excel spreadsheet and tell me like what your quota attainment was? <laughs> what do you, um, you got me curious now, like at such an early stage, what do you recommend the commission structure be for an account executive in that situation? Yeah. I mean, at some point you're going to, you're going to want to get to revenue. So you're going to have to decide at, you know, at what point that is. Um, and it could be three months, it could be six months. Um, so you know, depending on the seniority of the rep, if they're coming from a firm where, you know, you you know that they've got a pipeline and that pipeline is going to close uh, and they're having to give that up. And depending on your on your own financial position, you know, you, you, you might have to be open to offering non-recoverable draws uh, that could be 100 percent of the of their payout over the first six months of the of the ramp or the three months of the ramp, whatever you whatever you agree is the case. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll it, it, you know, it's horses for courses. It kind of depends on who you're hiring and 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 how and how well you know and trust them. But ultimately, you know, what you're what you're looking for here is to set qualitative goals that illustrates back to you that they're building unique point of view on the market. So you know, who you know, what do the competitors look like? How do you feel we compare? Who who is our ideal customer profile? Why is that? From a buyer persona perspective, like you know, if it's an enterprise play, you know, who who are the key personas that we should be selling to, and what's the language that we should be positioning uh, to them, and what and what does that look like from your perspective when it comes to talk tracks and sequences? So you know, these are all leading indicators to revenue, leading indicators to pipeline build, and that's ultimately how I would look at it. I would look at like, okay, we want to we want to work backwards from when we when we're likely to close our first deal, which could be six months out. What are the leading indicators that we need to look for to, to show that we're making progress there? And then what I'll do is I'll judge your performance and progress on your ability to influence those, those things from a qualitative perspective. And we'll eventually move quantitative as well uh, into, into, into basically pipe, pipeline, build, uh, pipeline build metrics. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, I want to be sensitive to time here and move on to sort of our next piece. So we've, we've talked a lot about idea market fit. I want to go into product market fit on your chart and talk mm -hmm. a little bit about no real wor world customers. And the way I was interpreting this is that, you know, that overlaps. There's this problem with not having these real customers. Like I talked about customers that are on free trials, customers that need custom coding before they'll buy. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that and what you've seen? Yeah. So this phase is really critical. So, um, this is when the rubber hits the road, right? Um, in in early stage startups, you have your hypothesis, you have your idea, you socialize that with your with your group of friends and family or, or whoever it is, and you do your best to validate it in in the real world. But it's not really the real world until someone puts their credit card down or like spends some money with you. So in this phase, you know what I'm what I'm really looking for is is customers that are prepared to part with cash but there is a process that you have to go through here before you can do that effectively um and you know the first phase of that for me is the acquisition of beta customers and these could be lighthouse customers that you know come to you on the understanding that this is a minimal viable product uh, it's not the finished article but um they're going to get it at a discounted rate they're still going to pay some money for it but it's going to be a discounted rate um, but 
you know, the deal here is that they're going to have to replay back to us the value exchange that they're seeing. Now, so many founders just don't engage in this in this structured discussion with their early stage customers. They just sell it and they move on to the next. In the worst case scenarios, they'll sell it and they'll just not even invest in customer uh, success. So, you know, they'll sell the product and then no one uses it. So they did all the hard work and they just didn't invest in the customer using it. So that's kind of an extreme situation. Why would you do that? It's very, very silly. What you really want to do is get these customers using the product, but have them sign up to like, what was the value? And what you'll find in this phase, what you should find in this phase is say you have 10 beta customers in a kind of enterprise kind of play. You're going to find a range of, of customers that come back to you and say, this was really valuable, basically on one end of the scale. And this wasn't very valuable. Um, and that's your first opportunity to iterate your ICP. So you would imagine that those that didn't find it valuable will tell you why, and they're probably not who you should be targeting. Uh, and and the opposite on the end of, on the on, for those that found it very very valuable. And what you're looking for here is how did you quantify that value? So what is the value exchange that you felt from our product? Sometimes it would be really easy and they'll be able to put a dollar value or a time save on it. Other times you'll have to dive deep with the customer and figure it out with them. But ultimately, you're, you're trying to get to a position where that value exchange is agreed between you and the customer, because then you have signal that will impact everything from product development to price to ICP. Um, and, you know, it's at that point that you refine who you go after. But it's also at that point you realize the value. You go back to the customer and say, this was the deal for Beard. If you want to continue with us, then um, it's probably fair that we charge you 10 to 20% of that value exchange. That's probably fair, right? Do you agree? Um, and when you get customers coming back and agreeing, then there you go. You now have your marching orders to go and do some kind of investment in sales and self-repeatability, still led by the founder. Um, to then take it up to the take it up to the next level um, and get some more customers, and then at that point you're surveying them to figure out, okay, is this is this something that you that you would be upset about if you didn't have, and then you're really approaching product market fit. Yeah, I will say like it's easier to make this mistake with a services business, but I see software companies do this too, and I've personally done this way too many times. You take on too many different customers that are too far away from your ICP. They're too spread out, too different from each other. And then you get that feedback and it's of no value or little value because, okay, this type of business gets value from your service in this way. And this type of business gets value from your service in this way. And there's no consensus. Mm -hmm. And so now you're looking at it and like, well, which one do I lean into? Each one of these is an outlier as opposed to saying, okay, we only work like in, in my case, we only work with early stage B2B SaaS companies that sell a product primarily between 10 and a hundred thousand dollars. There's exceptions to this, but then the more that we lean into that, the more that we get back from our customers, like this is why I value what you guys do and the, and what you bring to the table versus, Oh yeah, we also try to do this for these completely different businesses and they're mm -hmm. going to value it in a completely different way. Yeah. I mean, I, it takes courage from a founder to, to just put on the table all of the customers that they have at a certain point in time and just be honest about the value exchange and be honest about where their ICP is. The result for a lot of founders is short-term revenue trough, which for some is just impossible. It's like the difference between life and death. Sometimes it's impossible because they just, 
don't have a good enough relationship with their investors or don't control the board and they would feel fear for their existence if they had revenue trough. But ultimately, it's about fulfilling the the true vision of where this company is going and what the what the vision is of the founder. And, you know, those revenue troughs are sometimes very, very important. It enables you to to defocus on things that take up a lot of your time, but don't return a lot of value to the customer, a lot of revenue to you. And then to focus on the customers that do the opposite. So that revenue trough, if you get it right, is typically short-lived. And I found, you know, if founders have a good relationship with their investors and they tee that up honestly with them ahead of time so they can see how they're thinking about this, most investors will be completely comfortable with this approach. Um, and uh, and then, you know, long-term, the company is healthy for it. The worst thing you can do really is just continue to service this whole range of customers that it doesn't serve you uh, in the long term because it just creates lots of technical debt, you know, it makes it very difficult to create focus on the on the go-to-market team. And, and, and that servicing that is just, it becomes a complete nightmare over time. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, like, there's a company, I called the CEO of this company one time and they're pretty successful. Um, and I basically said, look, like we're talking to all of your enterprise customers and all of them are telling us that they're not getting any value from your solution and they're going to drop you. And the reason that I called her was I wanted to say, you know, as a service provider, we might have a way to help you end it. And the way that she responded, I thought was brilliant. She just said, great, we don't want them as customers. She's like, we don't want to be in the custom service business. Our ICP are these same types of customers with between like two and five employees. And these folks that have 200, 300 employees are not our customers. And so I'm happy to churn them. Um, and I just thought that was brilliant. Like that takes a lot of courage. And this was a CEO that had taken over the company and they were very successful and they were just very, very focused on here is who we deliver value to. And specifically for, for their instance, they're delivering value through an easy to use solution that a team of two, three, four, five people can buy and get going right away versus an enterprise solution where 300 users are going to be on it and need this big lengthy implementation and extensive customer uh, success resources. It's just, you have to think about what are the things that we bring to the table for those different types of customers? Because they're, they need, they have completely different requirements. I think we've got a yeah. question here. Um, yeah, let's see. Let's see. Mario, your question's a bit detailed. Do you want to just uh, go on, on camera and uh, ask your question? Yeah. Hey, what's up, guys? How you doing? Um, so my question is more around, like, uh, when do you stop accepting personal emails and just focus on the business email so you can um, improve, like, your persona, improve your systems, your processes? Because I've seen, I've seen organizations where, at the beginning, they sell to everyone. Anyone that wants to buy will sell to them. Um, but then as you start to, to scale, accepting personal emails makes it more difficult. It also makes it more difficult to AEs because you don't really know who you're reaching out to. Plus it's SMB, you really want to focus on growth and scale. So mid-market enterprise. Um, and to me, it's get rid of the, the personal emails so you can focus on building that, that organizational persona and start tackling larger organizations. Um, because sometimes if someone has a personal email and they're trying to buy something and they don't have money for a business email or maybe they haven't gotten there yet, maybe they're not ready for your product. Maybe they can't afford your product because really, realistically, a business email doesn't cost that much, especially if you're a small org, you go Gmail, you're going to pay what, 15 bucks, 
maybe 60 not bucks. Not that. I think I pay $5 a month per user. For yeah, it's not even expensive. Like my business email is, is a couple bucks a month. So I've seen organizations that at a certain stage will just stop accepting personal emails. And then others are like, no, we cannot stop accepting personal emails because how are we going to sell to them? And I, I feel like the focus is kind of a, more of a distraction. It's more data quality work to fix those personal email issues. Um, and to me, it just doesn't scale, but maybe I just don't have an experience. I don't know. So I think your question is as much a marketing question and a RevOps question as it is a founder-led sales question. I've got a lot to say on this, but Wayne, do you want to take this or is this sort of outside of your scope? I mean, I have a few opinions on it, but there is a, there's a lot to your question, Mario. Um, I mean, ultimately, if you have enough top of funnel uh, and you have um, a good enrichment process, then why do you, I don't know why you would need to chase the personal emails. But if, if you've only got 10 leads in your top of funnel and nine of them are personal email, then, you know, there's something fundamentally screwed with the business, uh, you know, that the, the founder would need to need to take a look at. Um, but um, I'll, 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 I'll pause that. I don't want to dive deep on this because I think, Eddie, you're probably going to have more qualified opinion on this because you see this stuff every day. Yeah, a little bit. I want to be careful not to dive too deep on here because some of what I want to say isn't relevant to the, the conversation for today. But what I would say is, is that in order to answer this question, Mario, we first have to ask a bunch of other questions or make some assumptions. One assumption uh, that Wayne led to was the size of your, your pipeline. You also have to ask like what these emails are being used for. So I posted on this just this morning that yesterday we got 73 inbound leads, right? This includes all of you guys that are on this, uh, this event today. And I don't have any problem with the fact that many of you guys likely use personal emails because I don't plan to do anything with it. All I'm going to do is send you guys an email to invite you to the next event. I didn't ask for your name or your company name or your phone number because I don't have a, a, a business process or a sales process where I'm going to take a team of SDRs and make a bunch of calls. And the reason that I'm not going to do that are a number of factors, but because I ultimately would not consider any of you guys to be a marketing qualified lead that should be handed off to sales. Just because you decided to come to an event and learn more doesn't mean that you're ready for a sales conversation. And I think like that's a whole other topic to determine when and if it makes sense to start to take leads and hand them over to salespeople. And I think that that's the fundamental issue that I see more in companies versus deciding on business or personal emails. But yeah, if you do a great job of developing a lot of great inbound leads um, and you're selling a B2B product, then it probably makes sense to put up a gate and on that forum say, we're not going to accept personal emails. I see that very frequently. But in my case, I'm not going to do that because I don't have any plans to try to, to solicit anybody that's on this call. Okay. Yeah. Eddie, that totally makes more sense. So more like a hybrid approach, like still accept it, but what are you going to do with it? Really? Maybe not prioritize. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if you think about how to create really good inbound leads for your sales team, people need to hit, you know, they need to meet a threshold, right? So, 
you know, maybe if you go to my website and you click on the book a strategy call button, I might require a business email address, but even then I'd have to ask, why am I doing that? Our pricing is listed on our website. That's a big thing. Like people aren't coming to me asking me to help them out for $100 because they can see that our pricing is $10,000 a month right on our website. It does a great job of filtering out like unqualified leads because people don't want to waste their time. Cool. Thank you. No problem. Um, all right. Great question though. Um, let's see if there's, I think that was it. Let's see. Okay, cool. Um, Wayne, let's dive in a little bit more into, um, sort of the go-to-market fit. So we talked about idea market fit, basically figuring out, does your idea fit with the market? Who is the market? What are your competitors? What is the unique selling proposition? Um, do you document who your ideal customer profile is? And do you understand, you know, the value that you're bringing to the table and not just the features? That's mm -hmm. how you've defined idea market fit. We went through product market fit, talking about not having real world customers, free trials, custom coding, et cetera. And now I'd love to dive into you on go-to-market fit. So the first thing that you have listed is the founder is still critical to sales. And I feel this personally, not every day. There's a lot of people on my team that do an even better job than I do, but it is really interesting to me um, to see how easy it is to slip into this trap where every sale depends on the founder. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, the thing to think about with go-to-market fit is the stage beyond go-to-market fit is typically the stage where you're going to take a significant amount of additional funding to be able to scale this thing, right? So in order to do that, you want to be very sure that all of the um, mach sales machine that you have is working. So that's going to be top of funnel, net new renewals and upsell so that whole piece needs to be operating effectively so if the if if the founder remains the fulcrum of everything that closes from net new and the next stage is we're going to go scale this then then how are you, how are you going to do that when the founder remains the bottleneck you're 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 not going to do that so in order to prove that you uh, prove that you can evolve from the founder-led sales motion, you have to move into this realm of sales repeatability. And it does start with the founder doing more selling, but at some point the founder has to abstract themselves and we have to test this with somebody else or more than one person in the business to see if everything that's been documented is actually transferable onto somebody else. And if that's possible and we see that working, then we know, okay, it's worked for one person. Does it work for two people? And actually for me, the key before you can uh, successfully exit the go-to-market fit stage into some kind of scale is at minimum, you have to have proven that you can do this with three AEs. I mean, ideally you would do it with multiple sales pods, but I have always found that getting it to that third rep is really, really challenging. I personally come unstuck with that myself. I thought my enablement was good. I thought my training was good, but the third rep just kept struggling. So why do you see the third rep being such a bigger struggle than than two reps? Um, my, so my personal experience, so at first my outlook was um, I wasn't hiring well enough. And then I was got a little bit more honest with myself. And then I thought, well, I'm not training well enough. And then it didn't come down to any of that. It just came down to my sales enablement documentation just wasn't strong enough. Mm. Um, and 
and um and 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 the reason that the third one was failing was because was because they still the documentation wasn't strong enough so they still needed me by their side to help them progress so, as soon as so is this took, like where you're you're coaching the first couple of A's and just so much of this is happening verbally and then when you bring in that third A you find out that like there's just not enough time in the day basically yeah but I I kidded myself that my sales documentation was strong enough and it just wasn't it just wasn't mm-hmm. good enough uh, so, um, I had to up my game there and be, uh, and be more honest about that and like, let the sales enablement documentation stand on its own two feet rather than be there as a crutch for it. So sometimes just getting out of the way is hard because you, you, you're nervous and you just, you just want to make sure this works, but you actually have to make sure that that, that documentation does what it's there to do, which is to support them to grow. And if it doesn't like now, you know, now's not the time to go pour fuel on this fire. Now's the time to go back and and iterate that stuff. So so that's critical, really, really, really. And and what I find is a lot of founders don't give themselves the runway to do that circle back, right? They're like, well, we've got to here. We now need to get to here. And this has to work because I'm now on a timeline. But if it doesn't work, you need to be able to like circle back and iterate. And that's going to extend your time. And that's a challenge for a lot of founders. So they just, they ignore that and they just keep pressing ahead. Yep. I totally appreciate that and feel that personally. Um, Ben Jones, you had a question. Do you want to jump on and ask your question? Uh, Yeah, sure. Hello, gents. Um, I'm not entirely sure sort of how relevant this question is. Um, in my mind, it's, it's pretty relevant to this conversation, but um, I'm one of three founders of a SaaS business. Mm-hmm. Um, based on your example, Wayne, I would say we are in the idea market fit mm-hmm. stage. Um, had a little bit of funding. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, basically, I am uh, I'm in charge of the sales, mm-hmm. and I am facing headwinds with my co-founders. They are convinced that product-led growth is the way to go, and that mm-hmm. is the only way that we can scale to what they see is the next fifty customers, which gets us to our pre-seed investment mm-hmm. in their mind. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I strongly disagree with that, but I don't have the the track record to prove them to prove otherwise to them mm-hmm. so I, I suppose my question in this case is how did you have you experienced this before having you know joined organizations with headstrong co-founders or founders and um do you have any advice really on <laughs> overcoming this challenge without necessarily having the track record to kind of convince them that <laughs> they're not quite right yeah i come with so let's let uh so I've come across this a lot. Uh, I, I try and spend my time specializing with product-led growth businesses today. Um, and the main reason I do is because for a lot of what we've spoken about, um, product-led growth businesses can't BS the market in the way in which sales-led growth can. So it's a lot harder for product-led growth to do that because you're literally having the product do the talking and you and you then, you then got all the data and the signals in the product that you can then instrument to determine when you spend more money and so on and so forth. It's just, if you get it right, it's a really beautiful way to 
build a SaaS business and one that I frankly um, focus on today. Um, however, like that, there, you know, in in order to get to the point at which you have uh, an understanding of what your customers want and what they need, the bottom line is you just have to get the product into their hands. So if you're struggling to do that on a you know on a on a on a pure product perspective, you know almost algorithmically, then like you know heroics comes into play, and heroics is like okay, well I'm going to go to market and get this in front of them um, physically from a sale in using using, and, and I think that there's a hybrid here that you might want to think about, Ben, which is it's it, it's not just it, it doesn't jump from product-led growth to sales-led growth. There is a the hybrid in the middle is sales-assisted growth, right? So where the product is still doing the heavy lifting, but, but to get it into the prospect's hands, you're having to assist the product to get it into their hands. Because what you really want to do in this early stage is have as many, you know, you want to get to these 50 customers. The reason I would, I would guess the reason you want to get to these 50 customers is because there'll be better customers, they'll give you signal and it will determine where you should focus next. Feedback on the product, but feedback on go-to-market as well for all the things that we've just been speaking about on this call. So the way I would position it is like, this isn't a flip of the model. This isn't us completely changing our philosophy from having the product lead our go-to-market to having sales lead our go-to-market. This is just me saying, in order to accelerate our, um, our our progress towards these fifty customers, I think there's going to need to be some some physical assistance, some heroics, and me and my team, or me or however many of there are, you are, are prepared to assist with that. But it's not going to disrupt the fundamentals of why this business exists. This business exists to be able to drive adoption primarily through the product which will then lead us to land customers that in the long term, we will expand through, through a sales team, right? So um, there's definitely compromise that you, um, you know, th th that's how I've always positioned the conversation. It's all, it always works. Um, and, yeah. you know, it's just, a, it's just an evolution. And, you know, no, I'm working with one of my customers today is in this wonderful position where they built a product-led growth engine. They have two and a half thousand customers um, and they have no sales team, multi-million dollars of revenue. And they're in this position where it's like, okay, it's a slightly different problem. We What we now need to do is to make sure we control churn and grow our business uh, to, to, to what its real potential is. And that's a, you know, that's a sales-led growth progression. From product-led growth and there's big cultural shifts that have to happen there but everyone's in no uncertain terms that you know they're now ready for that so i feel mm -hmm. your i feel your co-founders in the sense that like we're not gonna you know we, what we don't want to do is 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 build revenue that's not real and not sustainable we don't want to build revenue in a way in which will force us to do custom coding or custom development based on what customers you bring to us in kind of an in an inorganic way but that's not that's not how i would position it i would position it saying we want to we, we still want to get to these 50 customers but the way we want to go about it is through an assisted motion rather than a pure product motion yeah wayne yeah. i just want to second that too i mean if you break down sales-led growth and product-led growth there's lots of steps in there as you mentioned that overlap with each other 
And I think that even for a sales-led motion, there's a lot of things that we can really borrow from product-led growth that work really well. For example, like having pricing on the website, having a demo on the website, making it really easy for people to understand the value without having to go through the standard process of filling out a form and then hearing from an SDR and then getting qualified and then getting handed over to an AE. And in tandem with that, you're mentioning 50 customers. You know, there's that concept of like doing shit that doesn't scale. Even if you are doing product-led growth, does that mean that somebody can't pick up the phone and call somebody and ask them about their experience? Oftentimes that's that's actually part of the, the product-led growth strategy. And so uh, I, I just second everything that you said, Wayne. I think there's a lot of overlap there. Thank you. Russ, I don't know if you had a question or a comment or anything, but did you want to share? Or is this just for the chat? Well, it's basically just for the chat. I mean, I think it's very trendy right now to talk about PLG. I think it's very dangerous to, um, to go down the route of PLG early on if you don't really have a product that can be brought in by a single customer without involving IT or legal or anyone else. I'm just, you know, I'm just very cautious on the whole BLG trendiness right now. Yeah. Um, I was asking more because you were asking about Gong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that was the one before. Yeah. Uh, no, my question was in terms of, um, I found that when, you know, when you have a gap in enablement, if you have Gong there, it really helps people to be able to help themselves in terms of, you know, go back and look at calls and, um, you know, maybe even do some, some coaching, um, not necessarily in real time, but as a way to, to bridge that gap and enablement that uh, was mentioned prior. Yeah. Um, Gong is absolutely conquering the world right now. Wayne, do you got any opinions on this? Um, yeah. I mean, like I, I'm just to be fair to the other players out there, I, you know, I, I use things like Fathom and Sybil. I've also used Gong and there's, there's others out there, but I feel like a very commoditized marketplace, actually, the whole note taking uh, the whole note taking space. I actually fear for for Gong and that crazy valuation they got mid pandemic. Uh, so that's a sidebar, but yes, uh, absolutely critical um, and kind of game changing from a sales training perspective. So absolutely, you need to have those tools in place. Well, let me go back into this chart and just keep going. Um, really enjoying this conversation, Wayne. Um, so we talked about the founder being critical to sales. Mm -hmm. I'm curious though, how do you see that different as your, your point in product market fit of the pitch being in the founder's head? Like if we solve that problem, the pitch is no longer in the founder's head. How is mm -hmm. the founder still critical of sales? Or is this just like the further steps in the sales process? Well, I mean, what I'm saying here is they shouldn't be critical to sales, but if they are, that's a major red flag, right? So, um, yeah, clear? I'm asking like, is there a situation where the pitch is no longer in the founder's head because you've solved that problem, but they have yet to solve the problem of the founder still being critical to the sales process? Oh, oh, got it. Uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes, um, you know, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, sometimes you'll see founders uh, forcing themselves to be involved in the price discussion and negotiation for example mm -hmm. it's like no you can't do a deal without me because they're not confident on on the price and and but that all comes back to the value exchange that you fail to truly extract in the beta customer phase where they were testing the product and relaying the value back to you if you didn't get that right you're going to have insecurities around price and value and that's when the founder is going to come back and be like, well, I'm going to have to do this negotiation because I have this inflated price that I then want to like discount. And so, you know, you just don't, 
you just don't want the founder involved. Like the founder's job, if you're scaling a fast growth SaaS company, is to keep the company alive, to raise capital and like push forward on the vision. Like, you know, yes, they might be involved in some of the big strategic deals, but like, you know, that needs to be a small percentage of their day. So, um, so they just need to be, they just need to be out of there. But the, 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 um, now, really, in go in the go to market fit phase, it's this is when net revenue retention really comes into sharp focus, and I still find it amazing that lots of um, just operators at, in SaaS companies don't appreciate that the enterprise value of a SaaS company is not in the initial sale. I mean, everyone should just let that sink in for a little bit. It's not. I you know, as a sales rep, I felt like the hero. You know, I was like, if I do these deals, I'm like, I'm king. But when I saw these companies that I was in take my deals and then expand them by 5x, and then I saw the CS team grow to 5x the size of the sales team, I was like, wait a minute, I'm missing something here. And that's when I started to get really interested in the post-sale revenue. So, you know, the thing to really understand from, from go-to-market fit is this isn't about this is partially about sales, but a lot of this is, well, the majority of this is about what happens after the sale. So do you have that under control? A lot of founders just don't have the immediate piece under control after the sale, which is the onboarding process. So are people actually using the product? I cannot tell you how many times people have come to me with, hey, we have a million dollars of revenue. And like, I go speak to the customers and they're just not using the product. So they did a great job selling it but they overpromise them to deliver and that revenue is not going to renew. So, you know, one thing that you have to do at this stage of growth, or I always do, is, um, is, is revenue component analysis. Uh, I've written about this recently in a, in a, in a newsletter as well. It's, it's where you, it's where you, um, let me just try and find the link. Um, so uh, I've just put it in the chat for those that want to look at it afterwards. It's it's where you break down the revenue into into the its various components, Eddie. And I'm sure you've done uh, yeah. this a lot with your customers, right? You know, re retained MRR. New business MRR. versus retained. Yeah, resurrected expansion, contraction, churn. Like that will give you a real insight into like what what the health of that revenue really looks like. You know, so are you actually retaining the logos? And are you growing the revenue within those logos? So, you know, the top line revenue might be $2 million across. I think the example I give in this, in this newsletter is like three companies at about, I think it's at about two, $2 million run rate. But actually the underlying health of those businesses are all very, very different. So, you know, so that's all about, are you selling to the right customers and are you doing the right thing post-sale to retain them and to grow them? And if you haven't got that right in the go-to-market fit phase and you're about to go to the scale phase and, and pour gas on that fire, you, you're going to have a very, very rude awakening. And it's not going to be nice. And the VCs are going to get someone like me in to sit down with you and do this analysis. And it's going to be freaking painful. So like, get it right in the go-to-market fit phase, because otherwise it gets really, really nasty after that.
Yeah, I think it's really, really easy to fall into this trap where you feel so much pressure bringing new customers and just neglecting the existing customers. And I think especially with maybe a simpler product, founders can say, okay, we've made the sale. Now we hand this over to the CS team. The CS team is not fully equipped. I mean, when you think about customer success, there's so many facets to it. It's not just customer service. It's identifying unhealthy customers and going in there and making them healthy, which is very different from like managing tickets. It's you know, renewals, it's expansion. And there's so much there. And if you're saying, okay, well, our customer success is a ticketing system and some, you know, junior folks that are answering questions, like that's woefully insufficient. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. You just have to take, I mean, I just can't iterate this or, 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 or sorry, I can't, um, you know, kind of stress this enough. It's the revenue that happens post the initial 12 months that is the enterprise value of your startup. It's yep. as simple as that. Like, and if you don't understand that and appreciate that as a founder, uh, and you don't understand that and, and appreciate that as a leader, then you're going to make some bad decisions that are going to affect the lifespan of your startup that may or may, you know, may or may not have an incredible product. But if you don't get that right, then you're you're setting yourself up for a fall. Yeah. Part of the reason Salesforce is so valuable, at least when I worked there, is that the average customer was doubling their spend in the first 12 months. So to your point, um, you know, the AE would bring the new customer in. Um, and and kudos to Salesforce for saying, look, we're going to have AEs manage new and existing business because then as an AE, you have the incentive to make sure that they're successful. Um, and then double their spend in 12 months. And what really blew me away about the way that they set this up is that you would see account executives push really hard on their customers to use implementation partners and do other things that made it harder to close the deal, but yeah. that they knew were necessary in order to get that second sale three months, six months later, because they knew like, if I just take this deal yeah. down right now and say, yeah, sure, you can implement this yourself. Mm -hmm. You can, yeah, it's not a problem. I'm going to have this very upset customer in my hands and I'm not going to get the opportunity to sell them that next product six months later. Yeah. How did they, how did they set up the comp plan for you guys then? So you would get, you would get comped on the net new and then you'd have a window where you could get comped on the upsell or did you own the upsell indefinitely? How did, and, and how did that interface with the CS? Um, so, wow, this is a huge question. So basically like the simple answer in terms of comp plans are that you got like paid on every sale. doesn't matter if it's a new customer or an existing customer. I always wondered why they didn't give us more incentive to bring in new customers because it is harder, but mm -hmm. you know, you only have so many existing customers. Um, when I was there, I had a million dollar quota and my patch was 60 customers. So mm -hmm. you do the math. This is SMB by the way. So you mm -hmm. do the math and like you're making 20 calls a day. Like you don't have that many accounts to call. I'm calling every account three, you know, every three days. Right. Um, and so as a result, like, you know, I'll just actually, I'll run with that. I'm calling every account every three days, but I'm not calling the same person. So you're trying to go wide and deep. You're trying to call the CEO, mm -hmm. the CFO, the VP of sales, head of marketing, mm -hmm. head of customer success, the Salesforce admin, you know, various other departments that can use Salesforce. And this is not something I think is great. They typically churn accounts every 12 months. So you typically have your fiscal year to, to manage that patch. So if in February, cause their fiscal year is in January, ends in January, February, you know, 15th or so you get your accounts. You've got until January 31st, the following year to 
to close those new business customers uh, and expand every existing customer before you have to hand those accounts over to someone else, uh, assuming you don't get promoted. If you get promoted, it might happen even faster. Um, so the comp plan just basically pays you on every sale. But I would say this is not just comp because I would see people do things that were not in their best interest in terms of hitting quota and comp. It was also culture. Like I think people bought into this culture. And I'm not saying that Salesforce account executives are the most altruistic bunch in the world by any means. I think you know most of us that have bought from Salesforce know that this is not the case. But somehow everybody bought into the concept of like, look, like there are these things that you need to do to have success with our product, and I don't want to like not let you do these things. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how they accomplished that, but everybody I worked with was pretty on board with that. Like. You know, if you want to buy Salesforce and try to have your, you know, uh, office manager implement it your, themselves, like, I'm not going to support that. And if you yeah. just demand that I send you a contract, I'll do it, but I'm going to push back really hard. That's really cool. And it's one of the, um, so, you, you know, you're probably well aware that I'm a big, you know, I'm a big proponent of having net revenue retention as a factor in, in how, Oh, we consider compensation for reps. I'm sorry to interrupt, but there's like, I left out a big chunk of my answer. Yeah, go for it. So here's the thing that I think they did really well. And I, I'm still struggling to explain this so that startups can understand this and appreciate it because we're talking about an enormous enterprise here, right? So you had an individual for every role you can imagine. And the point I will make is, is startups can't afford to hire all these people, but these tasks need to be done one way or the other. So you'd mm -hmm. have a uh, customer service, of course, you'd have customer success, meaning like somebody who is dedicated to making sure that unhealthy accounts get the attention they need to become healthy. Mm -hmm. As a mm -hmm. quota carrying account executive, I did not have time to call somebody and find out that they're not using Salesforce because mm -hmm. the executives aren't bought in and mm -hmm. A, B, and C is happening. It's like, I can't deal with that. Mm -hmm. The best I can do is say, look, this is a problem. Let me call an executive, get their attention, and then get them in front of the right person. But I can't hold their hand. Like I do not have mm -hmm. time for that. We also had dedicated renewals managers. And then um, mm -hmm. you had, of course, all these product specialists. And then so the AE would quarterback the entire account and you would decide, okay, I've got this renewal coming up. They're healthy, but there's no sales opportunity. I'm just going to let renewals manage it. I'm not going to waste my time on it. How okay, do you find unhealthy. out about that? How do you find out? Talk to the customer. That? You wouldn't you wouldn't get fed that intel from the renewals person or the CS person. There wouldn't be some kind of flow into you. Of course, I wouldn't trust the renewals person to tell me whether or not there was a sales opportunity. I would have exhausted my efforts by that point already. And I would have already determined, okay, I've already talked to all the stakeholders. There's nothing here. I'm not going to waste my time facilitating the renewal process. Mm. Okay. Sorry, I want to interrupt your flow. No, you're fine. I'm just, I'm very passionate about this topic. I want to do a whole event on it. Um, but if there was a sales opportunity, then I would take the reins and I would personally manage the renewal. And I would use that as a compelling event to get meetings with the people that I need to say, your renewal is coming up. We need to have this discussion before that happens. Yeah. 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 No, this is, this is, this is a topic that's very close to my heart. And I, and I've got to be honest, I have never in the world of startups, SAS, I haven't, I don't believe I've completely nailed this yet. Um, I've still got work to do on how to build a, I built cultures. I built cultures where the salespeople 
fully appreciate and respect that the revenue post the sale is how we all win and and they and we and we've built process so that they pitch and position accordingly but from a compensation and um kind of operational structure perspective i feel like i've done a lot of hacking now the reason why this is really important to me it's always been important to me just because it's it, it's the fundamentals of a healthy business but the reason it's more important to me now is because i feel like with in my focus, you know, increasingly on product-led growth, I feel like instrumented within the code base are the signals that determine whether a, a deal is good or bad. We actually don't have to speak to people because we'll be able to see usage in the product to give us those signals. And usage well, and I want the, to be clear, I had that too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I bet you did. I bet you did in Salesforce. So, um, but anyway, I guess my point here is like, I think there's a lot of efficiency and optimization of go-to-market and sales teams that we can learn from places like Salesforce that product-led growth companies are very well positioned to take advantage of. I just haven't uncovered much of it or seen much of it. And the more people that I can speak with that are that care about this stuff and are doing this stuff, the more um, you know, I, I'll definitely be motivated to be part of that conversation. Yeah. And I'm happy to talk to you about it offline if you want to break it down. But I think like when I look at it, I would take each individual role. I would say who is responsible for expanding the account and opening and closing sales opportunities for larger contracts. I would say who is responsible for doing customer service? Who is responsible for identifying unhealthy accounts and getting them healthy? Who's responsible for facilitating the renewal? And who ultimately makes the final call on how that's going to play out? And startups can't afford to hire a bunch of different people for each of those roles, but they need to make sure to answer those questions to know like, okay, their renewal is coming up, who owns mm -hmm. it and what's the process to do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, yes, we, we should sidebar on that for sure. Um, I don't want to sidebar it too much though, because like, I think it's so incredibly relevant, especially in this environment that companies, especially early stage need to figure this out because they're just, we've been pouring money into grabbing new customers just to see them churn out the back end. And the best investment you can make not to be cliche is in maximizing what you're giving and what you're getting from your customers. Yeah. I mean, I don't it's a factor of a lot harder to acquire net new than it is to you know retain existing customers. These are all cliches. But we keep rolling the cliches out because we don't operate with with, with that knowledge front of mind. So there's clearly still a lot of work to be done here. And I mean, I've been on both sides of it. I, I, I worked in many jobs where I covered existing customers. I worked at Salesforce where I did both. Um, that startup I was at, I was only new business. And I was asking like, why are we, why am I not talking to any customers? There's no salesperson that is responsible for expanding an account. And that was partially a problem with their product that there wasn't a lot more to sell to folks. Mm -hmm. um, and even in my own company, you know, I struggle because I'm so heads down thinking about new customers and Jerry, who runs our delivery team is really more responsible for retaining, and growing our existing customers, but we're constantly syncing up on that. It's like, what more can I do to empower him to execute that? Mm -hmm. We have literal sales opportunities in Salesforce listed for every renewal and expansion opportunity that is listed under his name and a process around that. 
Um, but it's really easy to slip into like, okay, yeah. like that's just customer service or in our case delivery. And I'll just focus on new business. And getting this stuff right is, you know, takes time and there's, there's complexity here and you learn a ton of stuff when you, when you double down on those factors that you were talking about in terms of focusing on, you know, who, who does what from, you know, renewal to upsell to like troubleshooting, you learn a lot in that process and just coming, coming back to, uh, circling this back to our discussion, this go-to-market fit phase takes a lot longer than a lot of founders bargain for. And a lot of them don't have the runway to do that backtracking. So they enter into the scale phase pretty straightforwardly because it's easy, at least it was easy to pull the wool over a VC's eyes. You know, you can, it's, you know, it wasn't that difficult to raise the $10 million Series A round with some of the kind of top level metrics. But actually, there's, there was underlying go-to-market debt that they weren't being intellectually honest about. And a lot of that was built around like, well, you know, are we acquiring the right customers? Are we doing the right thing to retain them? And the answer was often no, but only when they poured that money from the VCs uh, onto the fire, that gas onto the fire, did they realize or did, did it become clearly apparent that the engine wasn't firing? So then they have to go backtrack. So my advice to founders is as you enter this go-to-market fit phase, make sure you have enough runway to be able to go backwards uh, and, and iterate as you get learnings rather than, rather than expect to just linearly just press ahead because you probably, if you're being honest with yourself, you will probably have to backtrack at least once or twice, which means you'll probably need more runway than you have bargained for so just to just make sure that you have that well and you've got three sub bullet points listed here under go-to-market fit you've got sales repeatability optimized churn and optimized cost and there's there are many companies out there that are very mature series c d e have large sales teams and tons of capital behind them that still haven't exactly cracked this yeah and um and, and the reason the optimized cost is in there is because, you know, like these large companies with large sales teams, you know, the gun has started for those firms. If they're late stage growth firms, the gun has gone. They're either going to go to a billion or go to zero. That's the reality, right? And that fits the thesis of most tier one VCs. When that gun has gone, you better be sure you get to a billion, because if you're not at a billion, you're probably going to zero. So, you know, this optimized costs piece is critical for two counts in go-to-market fit. I could switch that out to, instead of saying optimized costs, I could switch that out to profitability, running under your own steam, because you just, you just don't know how long that phase is going to take. So you need to be the master of your own destiny at that point in time, ideally. But if, you, if, you, if you've got this right and you've, you've got to profitability, then you know you have a real business. Then you then you have instrumentation in the background that tells you, okay, if I if I pour gas on this fire, this is the rate at which I should pour gas on the fire. This is what I should expect it to do from a growth perspective. This is how I expect it to impact our burn. Um, but if you don't have that under control going into that scale phase, it's just you know it's kind of head in sand guesswork. And for some, it works right. But like, there's just not the smart way to, I've never seen it as a smart way to build a business. I've always had an issue with it. Uh, thankfully, this bear market should, the silver line of this bear market is that I think more people will agree with me. 
Awesome, Wayne. Well, we are at time. I could keep going on this, but this has been fun. So thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate the invitation. And, and, you know, like, you know, like you just said, we could go on for, and we probably will uh, go on for hours and hours on, uh, on this just offline, maybe online again. We'll see. Everybody that came, thank you for joining us. We'll try to post this tomorrow um, to our podcast on Spotify and Apple and also send it out via email. Um, thank you guys so much. And Sarah, thank you for helping me put this together.